The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Well, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the the pastors here, and and I'm glad to be able to spend some time in the Word with you this morning. Uh, In our series titled Origins, Redemption from the Roots Up, we've been exploring the nature of how sin works within family systems. Now each week during this four-week series there will be a new resource for you to explore these dynamics within your own life, within your own experience. And you can grab those printed resources at the Heritage at Home or as Paul said on the app or off of the website, but I would encourage you please take advantage of this because The real work is not just in the hearing of the teaching, but it's what happens when you take what we are talking about and you begin to work through that process on your own. Uh, Last week we looked at generational sin patterns uh, that were repeated in the life of Abraham. And this week we'll be looking at generational patterns in the way that we navigate relationships. And we'll be looking at that through the lens of Isaac Abraham's son. Now, uh, shortly after I moved to Medford, uh, a house opened up for us that we were able to live in that was probably my favorite place that we have ever lived. It was in the southwest part of town in the old orchard flatland on, on the south end of southwest part of Medford there. And it had this huge barn in the back of the house and a big patio and a fire pit that was already built into the ground and a big yard in the back. And one of my favorite things about this piece of property, this house that we lived in, was that it had an abundance of fruit trees. There were apple trees. We had one single spindly little apricot tree. Uh, We had persimmon trees and two giant walnut trees in the front yard that dropped like a 1,000 pounds of walnuts every year. It was an amazing, amazing place to be. And I, I love that, growing up in the country, Uh, it was a place that very much made me feel at home. Now near the front were some old grapevines where the stalks were laid on the ground and the grapes had grown wild. The fruit from those grapes, when I uncovered them from blackberry vines and everything else, there was fruit there, little tiny clusters with maybe two or three or ten grapes on each cluster. And I thought, oh man, look at these grapes. And I, I put them to my mouth. But the skins were tough. The, the fruit was small. And the fruit tasted bitter. Though surviving, these vines were not thriving. Weeds had taken them over. And the stalks were laid on the ground. And they were all twisted and, and gnarled. Blackberry vine, vines were choking out some of the branches. And there were leaves and and branches, but there was very little fruit. At some point, someone had planted these vines with intention. But through neglect, through abuse, they never actually reached their full potential. You see, they were simply growing in the way that came natural. The vines were doing what God created them to do. They were growing where they were planted, but without the structure, without a little bit of tending, 
They were only growing in the soil that they were planted in. They were growing the only way that they knew how. Now this is often the experience of people. Your family is simply the soil that you grow up in. The condition of life after you grow up in your family seems normal. It's the waters in which you swim. And the sins that are a part of your family, the rules that inform your relationships, and the beliefs that you hold about yourself and about your identity in the world are all formed within that dynamic of your family of origin. And it just feels like that's the way the world is supposed to work. And as life continues to unfold, we all begin to discover that some of these formative realities are good and others affect us in ways that are very, very limiting. And the scriptures are so honest with us about how this happens. They're so honest with us about this reality. I think one of the clearest examples comes to us from the life of Abraham. Today, we consider how the family experience of Isaac and Rebekah, growing up in Abraham's family, how their family of origin experience shaped their family, impacted their family. So we're going to get to Genesis 27, but before we do that, I want to just kind of tell the story of their family experience. So it'll be a, a little bit before we get there. Just hang with me as I kind of recount some history. I want to give you the background of Abraham and Sarah. Now, Abram, also called Abraham, was the father of Isaac. And for the vast majority of their lives, Abraham and Sarah, Isaac's mom, were not followers of Yahweh. They grew up in Ur of the Chaldeans, and their entire upbringing was among idol-worshiping pagans. Eventually, they moved to Haran uh, with Abraham's father, Terah, and they settled there. And after Terah died, God appeared to Abraham at the age of 75 and told him to leave Haran and to move to a place that, God, that he would inherit, that God would give to him. And uh, Abraham and Sarah, they were unable to have children. So God told Abraham that he would make him a family. And that from his family, he would, he would make them into a great nation and that multiple nations would come from him. So Abraham obeyed. Abraham was a man of faith. He trusted God. Matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6, one of the foundational verses in the New Testament is this verse that tells us that Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. It becomes the basis in the New Testament for this, this idea that salvation comes by faith, by trusting what God has said. However, though Abraham had faith in God, the sin and relational dysfunction in his life continually created problems for him and for his family. As the, the story of Abraham continued to unfold, You can see that although he had great faith in God, he still manipulated the truth. On two separate occasions, 
He let his wife be taken as a concubine to Pharaoh and to Abimelech, two separate households and two different moments in life. He doubted the word of God and he caved into the cultural norms of having a child through his servant slash slave, Hagar. Now, before you think too poorly of Abraham, you have to understand that Sarah also brought her own issues into their marriage. Matter of fact, she is the one who didn't really think that God would make good on his promise to give them a child. And so she is the one who initiated the idea of Abraham having a child with her maidservant, her slave, this Egyptian, Hagar. Now, this is likely a servant that she picked up when she was living in Pharaoh's house in Egypt. One sin leads to another sin, leads to another sin. And when Hagar did get pregnant, there was jealousy and strife between the two women who were sharing the same man. And ultimately, Sarah deals so harshly with Hagar that this pregnant woman attempts to flee all the way back to Egypt, and God has to intervene to comfort Hagar and make promise to her that, that he would care for her and for her son. God gets her ultimately to return back to Abraham's house, and Abraham at this point is 86 years old when Ishmael is born, his son by Hagar. Now when God appears to Abraham at 99, he tells him that his 90-year-old wife would soon bear a son. How many of you that, think that sounds like a blessing? <laughs> we have some friends who in their 40s uh, had a surprise baby, and my wife's immediate reaction was like, oh no, <laughs> there's no way I could start over. I don't have the energy for that right now. So his 90-year-old wife would bear a son. How does Sarah respond when she hears this promise? Sarah responds with laughter out of unbelief. She still doesn't believe the promise or power of God to do what he said. So Sarah had just as many sins, just as many doubts, just as many issues as Abraham did. And they both brought that into their marriage relationship. However, all the sin and dysfunction in Abraham and Sarah did not stop God from working in their lives. Eventually, Sarah laughed out of joy at the birth of her only son, Isaac. Now, finally, when Abraham was a hundred, Isaac was born. When Isaac was weaned from his mother, Abraham threw a feast to celebrate. We find that in Genesis chapter 21. Now, Ishmael, who was likely the same age as a freshman in high school, is found mocking Isaac during the weaning party. And the rivalry between Sarah and Hagar was always li lying just below the surface. And so Mama Bear Sarah throws an absolute hissy fit. She tells Abraham there is no way that her son is going to share the inheritance with the son of a slave girl. 
And she exerts so much emotional pressure on Abraham that he ultimately casts out Hagar and Ishmael. He sends them off into the desert with nothing but a skin of wine and some bread. And while wandering in the desert, they almost die. And once again, God has to intervene and miraculously provide water for them, sparing their lives in order to fulfill the promise that he made to Hagar from chapter 21. This is the dysfunction that Isaac grew up in. Sharp marital disagreements, lying, adultery, parents showing favoritism, bitterness, resentment, jealousy, step relationships, and family members that were ultimately exiled and cut off. As Isaac grew into a man, he remained unmarried until his mother died. He was in his late 30s at that time. And the way the Bible describes it, you get the impression that this miracle child who was born to an older woman was uniquely attached to his mother and she to him. This is all present in the house of Abraham, the, the father of faith. After Sarah died, Abraham makes his servant promise to find Isaac a wife who is not a Canaanite. He doesn't want Isaac marrying into the Canaanite culture. So Abraham wanted someone from his own clan. Eventually, God leads the servant to Rebekah, which was Abraham's niece from his own clan. And as we're introduced to Rebekah's family, we're able to pick up a few clues about some of the sin and values and dysfunction that are a part of her family as well. In Genesis chapter 24, verse 30, it tells us that when the servant went to Rebekah's family to ask permission to give her to Isaac in marriage, it was her brother Laban who took great interest. The text tells us as soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arm, he immediately went into schmoozing mode and began schmoozing the servant right away. Come in, I've prepared this tent for you. Everything's ready. We're so glad you're here. He's very, very welcoming once he sees the rings and the gold bracelets that were given to his sister, Rebecca. Now later in Genesis, in chapter 29 through chapter 31, we see the true nature of Laban. Rebecca's brother, as he swindles his nephew Jacob into marrying both of his daughters in exchange for 14 years of servitude. So Rebecca's family has a problem with cheating to get ahead, a fixation on gaining blessing and wealth. And this is the family that Rebecca grew up in. Now eventually, the servant returns with Rebecca. These two people, shaped by the soil that they grew up in, were now going to be married. Isaac married Rebecca at 40 years old. And there's this, there's this strange little verse that stands out from their wedding story. It's in Genesis chapter 24, verse 67. It says this right after their marriage. Then Isaac brought her, Rebecca, into the tent of Sarah, his mother, 
and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Okay. In other words, Isaac never moved out of mama's house. His new wife was a replacement for the female companionship of his mother. Hey, just, just curious, how many of you ladies out there would really love this situation, would find this ideal in a marriage? Anyone want to marry a man so that you can be the replacement for dear old mom? Abraham eventually had six more children with another wife after Sarah died. But he ultimately exiled them as well to the east. And he gave all that he had to Isaac, the promised child. And though this family is a family of faith, they are still experiencing the fallout of sin. There are still unhealthy patterns that do harm in their present relationships and affect the future of their family. Here's the main point of all this. This is something I want to repeat, and I want it to be ingrained in our hearts and minds. Listen. Relational patterns from the past create relational problems in the present, laying relational foundations for the future. Let me say that again. Relational patterns from the past create relational problems in the present, laying relational foundations for the future. This is the reality. And the Bible unfolds this for us. We get to see this over multiple generations, the repeated sin patterns, the the repeated relational dynamics. We get to see from God's perspective how those things play out over time and over generations. So let's look at Isaac and Rebekah. Let's look at how this manifested in the lives of these two after they are married. Isaac is raised in a family that leaves a legacy of faith. However, the dysfunctional patterns from his and Rebecca's family of origin still remain. And as we follow their story, we find out that Isaac and Rebecca struggled to have children as well, just like Isaac's parents did. It would take 20 years, actually, before Rebecca finally conceived. Now, during her pregnancy, her womb was in constant turmoil as the twins wrestled inside of her. And when, when she sought the Lord to, to gain some understanding, God told her that there were two nations that were wrestling in her womb. Then he prophesied over the unborn twins that the older would serve the younger, Genesis 25, 23. Now, eventually, she gave birth to the twins. Now, when they were born, there's this fun little redneck story that, that kind of uh, is, is fun to laugh at, but, but sets the tone for these two boys. The firstborn looked like some sort of like Viking-Wookie combination. He was red all over with hair all over his body, so much so that the Bible says all his body was like a hairy cloak. Now, I don't know how hairy you have to be to get that as a descriptor when God is trying to describe what the kid looked like, but I'm imagining it has to be fairly fairly hairy. hairy. Boy, 
That's harder to say than it sounds. So they came up with this creative name. They called him Harry. <laughs> now, the, the name is actually Esau, but Harry is what it means. Now, as Esau emerged from the womb, a little hand also emerged holding on to the heel of his brother. Now, Isaac and Rebekah, no doubt, they thought of the struggle that had taken place in Rebekah's womb in the previous months. So they named the second boy Jacob, which means takes by the heel. Or a, a, another way that you could say it is he cheats, right? He's trying to trip his brother up. He's a cheater. Now, this pet name becomes something that hangs on as a marker of Jacob's life. Though it's not a flattering name, being a cheater is something that constantly marked the life of Jacob. And there's a couple of interesting verses that wrap up the biblical account of their birth. In Genesis chapter 25, verses 27 to 28, it says this, When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, dwelling in tents. Now check this out. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. But Rebekah loved Jacob. Okay. So here you see repeated, the repeated family pattern of showing favoritism. This is plain to see from the text. But the question is, Why? Do you remember how Isaac never really left his mom's tent? Could it be that Isaac saw in Esau what he lacked in his own experience? A sense of independence, of, of bravado as he hunted and killed food. And thus, Isaac preferred Esau? What did Isaac not like about Jacob? Could it be that he saw in Jacob the things he felt shame about over his own life? Jacob was a mama's boy. Preferred life in the tent and cooking in the kitchen. Or, or, or did Isaac resent the fact that Rebekah was now mothering someone else? And Isaac, the mama's boy, didn't like it. He had been replaced. We don't know. The text doesn't tell us, but the text does tell us that they played favorites within their home. As the boys grew, the rights of the firstborn were culturally expected to be given to Esau because he was the first to leave the womb. He was the firstborn. Now, two important aspects of the rights of the firstborn were the birthright and the blessing of the father. Now, a birthright was... An honor given to the firstborn, bestowing head of household status and the right to inherit the father's estate. The son with the birthright would receive a double portion of whatever was passed down. You can see this as a principle in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 17. However, the blessing was different. The blessing be could be given regardless of birthright. However, the greater blessing was typically given to the one who held the birthright because by blessing the head of the household, you bless the whole family. 
So it makes sense to pour the greater blessing out on the one who has the greatest control of the family's assets. Now in the remainder of Genesis 25, we see that Esau thought little of his inheritance of the birthright. He didn't value it. And after coming in from a long day of work in the field, he finds Jacob cooking in the tent as he always was. He's cooking some stew. And he's famished. He wants some. But Jacob wants something too. He wants the birthright. Now ultimately, Esau gives up his birthright for a bowl of stew. He passes on his entire inheritance to Jacob for a bowl of stew. But I can't help but wonder how all that time that Jacob spent around his mom, Rebecca, affected him. Remember? She grew up in a family where the values of blessing and riches were elevated. How much of those values seeped into Jacob's heart as well that he was willing to swindle his brother out of the birthright? Now, as the story continues to unfold... Isaac has his own encounter with God in Genesis chapter 26. Here God confirms the covenant that he made with Abraham to Isaac as well. God says, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of the heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. The exact same words that God spoke over Abraham, he now speaks over Isaac. But in that exact same chapter, guess what happens? Isaac repeats the same marital pattern from his own family of origin. Isaac does to Rebekah what his father did to Sarah. And this all takes place in the same chapter as as his encounter with God where the Abrahamic covenant is confirmed to him. When he moves to Gerar, he's afraid that his wife is too beautiful and that he'll be killed by someone wanting to take her. So what does he do? He lies and says, she is my sister. Remember, that's exactly what Abraham did to Sarah on two separate occasions. Where did he learn this trick? It's a little trick he learned from dear old mom and dad. One day, the king of the Philistines, a guy named Abimelech, interesting, same name as the the one that Abraham traded his wife Sarah off to, Abimelech is looking out the window of his house and he notices something scandalous. There's Isaac and Rebekah, who he thinks are brother and sister, together. Now the English translation says that they were laughing, but the Hebrew seems to imply something a little bit more intimate. And Abimelech calls Isaac to account for his lies and orders that none of the men under his rule are allowed to touch Rebekah under penalty of death. And Jacob and Esau are witnesses to all that takes place in their family. They grow up seeing this example. Now probably the greatest example of these inherited patterns of relationship is seen in Genesis chapter 27 where we're going to be looking at our text for today. It's a lot of verses so we're going to go through it rather quickly. I'm going to make a few comments. Genesis chapter 27 When Isaac was old and his eyes were dim so that he could not see, he called Esau, his older son, 
and said to him, my son, and he answered, here I am. And he said, behold, I am old. I do not know the day of my death. Now then, take your weapons, your quiver and your bow and go out into the field and hunt game for me and prepare for me delicious food such as I love and bring it to me so that I may eat that my soul may bless you before I die. So Isaac recognizes that he's near to death. So he, he calls who? Both sons? Nope. His favorite son. He calls his favorite son. And then he says to him, do what I like so that I can bless you. Can you, can you see the performance-based relationship that he has with his children? Do what I want so that I can bless you. Verse 5, now Rebekah was listening when Isaac spoke to his son Esau. So when Esau went to the field to hunt for game and bring it, Rebekah said to her son, Jacob, I heard your father speak to your brother Esau. Bring me game and prepare for me delicious food that I may eat it and bless you uh, before, I die, before, the, uh, before the Lord, before I die. Now therefore, my son, obey my voice as I command you, go to the flock and bring me two young goats so that I may prepare from them delicious food for your father such as he loves. And you shall bring it to your father to eat so that he may bless you before he dies. Now Rebecca here overhears and begins scheming immediately to get the blessing for her favorite son. Remember the opportunity of blessing and wealth or high value for her. And this opportunity for her favorite son can't be missed, so she's going to do whatever it takes to make sure that her favorite gets the blessing. Verse 11, But Jacob said to Rebekah's mother, Behold, my brother Esau is a hairy man, and I am a smooth man. Perhaps my father will, will feel me, and I shall seem to be mocking him and Bring a curse upon myself and not a blessing. His mother said to him, Let your curse be on me, my son. Only obey my voice and go and bring them to me. So Jacob here raises concerns about betraying his father. This was an opportunity in their family to turn away from the manipulation, the lying, the scheming. But mom is fixated on what she thinks is the greatest treasure of all, the getting the blessing for the one that she loves. That's her values. That's where she comes from. It doesn't even get questions. questioned. It doesn't even get examined. It's just, she's just functioning out of instinct in this moment. Verse 14. So he went and took them and brought them to his mother, and his mother prepared uh, delicious food, such as his father loved. Then Rebekah took the best garments of Esau, her older son, which were with her in the house, and put them on Jacob, her younger son. And the skins of the young goats she put on his hands and on the smooth part of his neck. And she put the delicious food and the bread which she had prepared into the hand of her son Jacob. Here, Rebekah is thinking of everything. She is the master manipulator of her blind husband. She thinks everything through. He needs to smell like Esau. He needs to feel like Esau. And, and, and he needs to bring food like, like 
Isaac loves, the, the kind that Esau would make. And so she, I don't know if she used duct tape or what she used, but she puts a goat hide on his neck and a, and a goat hide on his arm so he's as hairy as his brother. And she sends him in there to deceive dad. Verse 18. So he went into his father and said, my father. And he said, here I am. Who are you, my son? And Jacob said to his father, I'm, I'm Esau, your firstborn. I've, I've done as you told me. Now sit up and eat of my game that your soul may bless me. But Isaac said to his son, how is it that you found it so quickly, my son? And he answered, because the Lord your God has granted me success. Now Isaac is suspicious. So to reinforce the light, Jacob even appeals to God as being the one who blessed his hunt. He uses spiritual language and God to manipulate his dad, to appeal to his dad's faith foundation. I don't know if you've ever been around a spiritually manipulative family. It's a toxic place. The second generation of kids that come out from under that are the, the, associ the associations that they have with who God is based upon their family of origin are so hard, so difficult to break because God has been used as a force for manipulation. Personal obedience is not the, vo the goal or the value. God is a tool that is wielded to produce the kind of behaviors that are wanted. Verse 21, Then Isaac said to Jacob, Please come near that I may feel you, my son, to know whether or not you're really my son Esau or not. So Jason, uh, for Isaac is suspicious here. And verse 22, so Jacob went near to Isaac, his father, who felt him and said, the voice is Jacob's voice, but the hands are the hands of Esau. And he did not recognize him because his hands were hairy like his brother Esau's hands. And so he blessed him. He said, are, are you really my son Esau? And he answered, I am. Then he said, Bring it near to me that, it, that I may eat of my son's game and bless you. So he brought it near to him and he ate. He brought it, him wine and he drank. And then his father said to him, come near and kiss me, my son. And so he came near and kissed him. And Isaac smelled the smell of his garments and blessed him and said, see, the smell of my son is as the smell of a field that the Lord has blessed May God give you of the dew of heaven and of the fatness of the earth and, of the, and plenty of grain and wine. Let peoples serve you and nations bow down to you. Be Lord over your brothers and may your mother's sons bow down to you. Cursed be everyone who curses you and blessed be everyone who blesses you. After overcoming the suspicions of Isaac, Jacob gets the blessing that he deceived for. The problem, though, is it will cost him his relationship with his entire family. As we look at the remaining verses, we'll see that Jacob ultimately has to flee for his life from his family. Check out verse 30. As soon as Isaac had finished blessing Jacob, when Jacob had scarcely gone out from the presence of Isaac, his father, Esau, his brother, came in from his hunting. He also prepared delicious food and brought it to his father. And he said to his father, Let my father arise and eat of his son's game that you may bless me. And his father said to him, Who are you? 
And he said, I'm your son, your firstborn, Esau. Then Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it before you came, and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. As soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with exceeding great and bitter cry and said to his father, bless me, even also me, O my father. But he said, your brother came deceitfully, and he has taken away your blessing. Esau said, is he not rightly named Jacob? Remember the meaning of the name? Cheater? Heel snatcher? For he has cheated me these two times. He took away my birthright, and behold, now he has taken away my blessing. Then he said, have you not reserved a blessing for me? And Isaac answered and said to Esau, Behold, I've made him Lord over you, and all his brothers I have given to him for servants with grain and wine. I have sustained him. What then can I do for you, my son? Esau said to his father, Have you but one blessing, my father? Bless me, even me also, O my father. And Esau lifted up his voice and wept. Then Isaac, his father, answered and said to him, Behold, away from the fatness of the earth shall your dwelling be, and away from the dew of heaven on high. By your sword you shall live, and you shall serve your brother. But when you grow restless, you shall break his yoke from your neck. Now Esau says, Jacob really is the heel-grabbing cheat. You chose the perfect name for him. Then Esau gets this second-rate blessing from his dad. And then in verse 41, Now Esau hated Jacob because of the blessing with which his father had blessed him. And Esau said to himself, The days of mourning for my father are approaching, and then I will kill my brother Jacob. But the words of Esau, her oldest son, were told to Rebekah. So she sent and called Jacob. Her younger son said to him, Behold, your brother Esau comforts himself about you by planning to kill you. Now, therefore, my son, obey my voice. Arise, flee to Laban, my brother in Haran. Stay with him a while until your brother's fury turns away, until your brother's anger turns away from you and he forgets what you have done to him. And then I will send and bring you from there. Why should I be bereft of you both in one day? Then Rebekah said to Isaac, I loathe my life because of the Hittite women. If Jacob marries one of the Hittite women like these, uh, one of the women of the land, what good will my life be to me? So Esau grows bitter, hates Jacob, begins plotting to kill him. Now, it may have looked like that in your household, but I doubt anybody was real serious about it. This seems like it's pretty serious. So much so that mom wants to send Jacob away for his own protection. Remember, Esau's a really good hunter. So what does mom do? She lies, cheats, and manipulates Isaac. And they send Jacob away. And Jacob is cut off from his family for years. For years. Relational patterns from the past create relational problems in the present 
laying relational foundations for the future. I want to give you just three key observations from our passage today. Something for you to take to the bank. First of all, first observation is, just because you have faith doesn't mean you live without relational dysfunction and sin. Let me say that again. Just because you have faith doesn't mean you live without relational dysfunction and sin. Isaac learned how to navigate the relationships in his life through the experience of his own family. Rebecca, Isaac's wife, was shaped by the values and rules of her own family experience. And even though they both had faith in God, the broken ways that they learned to navigate the relationships that they had had a profound effect on their present family. Families of faith have sin and relational junk to work through as well. This is key to understand. You know, a lot of times, guys, for us on the pastoral staff, people come to us when things are really, really broken. Why? Because they're afraid that having a marital disagreement or having a a problem that you can't solve within a relationship, that it means that something's really wrong with your faith because you're, you're not able to work something out. Listen, we all come to the table broken. That's the reality. Just because you have faith doesn't mean that you don't have junk to deal with. It's a normal part of life. Second thing, second observation. You can be blind to your dysfunction. You can be blind to your dysfunction. Listen, Isaac didn't see the ways that his family had formed him. And neither did Rebecca. They just, they just related the way that they related. They did what came natural to them. Without examining, without thinking about the impact of how their upbringing impacted their present relationships. They're just operating out of this is the way things are. To continue to live like that can create a sort of blindness. If you don't examine, if you don't look at why you do what you do, why things are broken in relationships... You can be blind to your dysfunction. Third observation. Refusal to acknowledge and deal with relational dysfunction has consequences in the present and the future of a family. See, Jacob learned from his parents that it was okay to be a deceiver, and so Jacob went on being a deceiver. That pattern would take years for God to deal with in his life. Jacob would also experience what it's like to be deceived, tricked into marrying Leah and Rachel by his uncle Laban. Then later, Jacob would experience being a father who is deceived by his sons when they lie about Joseph and say that he died when really they had sold him as a slave. He would experience marital dysfunction and infighting in his family, and he would repeat the pattern of creating that dysfunction through having favorites among his children. Remember, Joseph was Jacob's favorite, and he thought it was okay to have favorites. He made a special coat for him. 
Generation after generation repeating the same patterns that were laid out for them. What about you? What about you? Do you see patterns in the way or in the ways that you relate to others? Patterns that you may have picked up from your family of origin? Maybe it'd be helpful if I toss out a few questions for you to ask yourself. What did you learn about the expression of anger or sadness or joy in your family? What are those lessons? What are those rules that you live by? How normal is physical expressions of affection? Are you cut off from people? Is it odd to give a hug? Is a a handshake almost too intimate? What did you learn about success and how it's measured? What were the rules that governed your family that told you what success really is? What did you learn about failure? How okay is it to be flawed, to fail, to sin? How comfortable are you coming to those you revere and acknowledging those things? What expectations do you have for how you should be treated by others? that you're in relationship with. What do you expect? Is it okay to be treated poorly? Is it okay to be lied to and used? Do you have high expectations for what a quality relationship looks like? And where did you get those patterns? Where did you learn those rules? You know, as we continue to pursue emotional health as disciples of Jesus... We must learn to relate to others the way that he did. To become like Jesus, we will all need to learn how to relate to others on the basis of grace and truth. The basis of grace and truth. Grace is, I'm forgiving, I'm loving, you don't deserve what I offer, I offer it freely, you're not earning it. And truth, this is what the reality of our situation is. This is how I've wronged you. This is how you've wronged me. The honesty, back and forth. Listen, the gospel is not just good news about forgiveness. It is good news about a good God who redeems and gives the power of change to us by the Holy Spirit. We do not have to continue living according to the patterns laid out in our family of origin. We can grow. We can change. I wonder, if we really begin to work the gospel through the fabric of our lives, if we get, begin to let it filter down through us, I wonder how it might impact our relations How does the gospel address relational dysfunction? I want to give you five different ways, and there's many more, but I want to give you five distinct ways that the gospel addresses relational dysfunction. First of all, the gospel tells us we are all sinners. We don't come to the table untouched by sin, and throughout our lives, we will need need to address our dysfunction. 
Our lives will be one continuous act of repentance. That's the reality of it. Because we're all born in sin. This sets the tone for our need to examine our hearts and to examine our relationships. Because we should expect that there will be problems. We should expect that there will be difficulties to work through and to overcome. That is normal life born under sin. And the gospel tells us that's the reality that we live in. Now, we jokingly say around my house uh, that to my kids, you know, we're not saving for college, we're saving for therapy. You can work it out as time goes on. You know, that's that's the the hope is that you'll be healthier in the long run. Uh, But we know that we're probably going to deposit some drama and some trauma into your life. Uh, That's just the reality of living with mom and dad who are sinners. Second thing, the gospel tells us where to learn a new way to relate. You see, though we grew up in a family, we were created to be in God's family. We are God's children. And God's way of relating gives us a new pattern to learn from our eternal and ultimate family. So much of the instruction from the New Testament is practical instruction about how to live in relationship with others in light of the gospel, in light of being made a part of God's family. We learn to be husbands by the way that Christ loves the church. We learn to be wives by how the church is to relate to Christ. We learn how to be parents by the way that God loves and relates to and trains and protects his kids. We learn to be children by the way that Christ relates to his father. We learn to be siblings from our older brother, Jesus Christ, and how he relates to us. We learn to be friends the way that Jesus is a friend closer than a brother. We learn to be neighbors through the example of Jesus who lived like the good Samaritan loving his neighbor. We learn to be bosses who lead by example from the way that God has led us. And we learn to be employees who labor with integrity the way that Jesus did all that he did to the glory of God. Every type of human relationship is addressed by the gospel and when we absorb and allow the gospel to work its way into our lives, it has an impact on the way that we relate to others. Third thing, the gospel empowers us to confront our weakness. Because Jesus died for my sin, the Bible tells me that there is no condemnation. Therefore, I never have to fear confronting my sin my weakness, my dysfunction. I could talk openly about it because I already know I'm forgiven. I don't have to be afraid of facing my failures because condemnation is off the table. I already know I'm loved. I already know I'm forgiven. It says nothing about my worth and value. All that it speaks to is the ways in which I need to grow as a disciple of Jesus. Number four, the gospel defines safe relationships. The gospel defines safe relationships. How many of you know that there are unsafe people in the church? I, you know, one, I think one of the tragedies is that sometimes we overpromise what church community can be. 
We say, this will be the fix to all your family of origin issues. No, it won't. Pretty much a guarantee. There are problems within the family of God. The church can be just as destructive as relationships in the world, and oftentimes is. There are wheat and tares growing together. There are sheep and wolves in the same household. There are mature and immature people in the same place. So what that tells us is that we have to be discerning about relationships. Safe relationships have the attributes of our relationship with God. They respond to us the way that he does. Let me give you some examples here. Unsafe people avoid closeness. But safe people, like God, connect intimately. Unsafe people are only concerned about themselves. Safe people demonstrate concern and care for others. Unsafe people resist the freedom of others. But safe people encourage the freedom of others. Unsafe people flatter us. But like God, safe people confront us. Unsafe people are condemning. Safe people are forgiving. Unsafe people relate as a parent child. I'm bigger than you, badder than you, better than you. I tell you what to do. But safe people relate as equals. Just like God who came in the incarnate son and dwelt among us. Unsafe people are unstable over time. Safe people are consistent over time. They always repent. They always seek good. They always move towards forgiveness. Unsafe people are a negative influence and safe people are a positive influence because they long for your wholeness. They are imaging, mimicking the behaviors of God in relationship with you. That's how you know the difference. Fifth thing, the gospel defines responsibility. Listen, God does not do codependency. He allows us a measure of autonomy. I have the freedom, actually, even as a child of God, I have a freedom to resist conviction. I can even grieve the Holy Spirit or even outright reject God altogether. Now, he takes the responsibility to love us, care for us, express affection, but how we respond to him is our half of the relationship. A helpful phrase that I've learned in relating to others is to constantly remind myself, I am responsible to you, but I am not responsible for you. That's worthy of writing down, by the way. I am responsible to you, but I am not responsible for you. My job is to own my faults, to love, to forgive, to speak the truth, to confront on matters of sin. How you respond to those things is your area of responsibility. And I'm not trying to exert some pressure to make you do what I want you to do. That's yours to own. There's a boundary that exists between you and I. My job is to own my faults, to love, forgive, speak the truth, confront, and how you respond is your responsibility. Now, this is especially helpful in navigating relationships that are unhealthy. Sometimes, guys, the limiting factor 
of the health of a relationship is not you. It is the person who refuses to take responsibility for their wrongs, who refuses to hear the truth, and refuses to respond to your love. Often relationships disintegrate because one party refuses to respond to the other or to their responsibilities in maintaining health in the relationship. And so the gospel tells us there's a part that we take ownership for, that's ours, and then there's a part that the other party takes ownership. Just like we take ownership of our part of the relationship with God and he takes part in his ownership, of the, his part of the relationship with us. I want to go back to the vines that I talked about at the beginning, back to the grapevines in my yard. The clusters of grape were small and usually slightly bitter. The skins were tough. After doing some reading on, on, on growing grapes, I decided to see what I could do to nurture these vines back to health. I, and I discovered that grape vines are actually very forgiving. They could take a lot of abuse and survive. But to, to thrive, there were a few things that you needed to do. First, they needed to have the ground cleared around the roots and the soil turned to allow moisture in and ease the growth of the root system. Second, they needed a support structure. In order to grow up healthy, they needed something holding them up. And third, grapes need heavy pruning. When you have too many branches growing that aren't bearing fruit, the sap from the vine goes to the branches instead of the fruit. Now, the first year was messy. I mean, I, I, I pruned the grapes so hard that I thought I killed them. When I was digging at the roots and, and pulling out clumps of grass, all the weeds that had grown up through the roots of, of these grapes, many of the roots were being damaged and ripped up and exposed in the process. When I added the wire trellises, for, a few branches, for the few branches that were left after pruning. I, I, I felt like I was twisting the branches where they did not want to go. I was propping up the vines. There was resistance because they, they were used to growing in a certain pattern, laying on the ground, and it felt like I was breaking them to get them to stand up. They'd grown accustomed to lying on the ground and growing horizontally rather, rather than vertically. Now, I did all this work in the fall. This meant that for a year, I had to look at the vines that I had seemingly tortured. I got to see the bare sticks sticking out of the ground that I had hacked back and the branches and the, the, the turned up soil and the roots sticking up out of the ground. And I thought to myself, boy, I don't know that this actually helped. I mean, I, I don't know that this did any good. But the next year, we had immediate results. Clusters of sweet, juicy grapes. And the vines took off. They were so loaded that I had to actually add stronger posts and stronger wires to hold them up. I did it with baling wire first, and I had to move to something heavier gauged to support them. More fruit than I could have imagined from these spindly little sticks lying on the ground. Hey guys, listen, the topics in this series are a little like that. Bringing health to the fruit of our lives 
sometimes looks counterproductive. It can seem like you're, like you're dredging up drama to look at the roots of our behavior. As Paul said last week, it's, it's painful to realize that Jesus is in our hearts, but Grandpa is in our bones. Often there's even a season where it doesn't feel like talking about these types of things is actually doing any good. But we all need to allow the Lord to bring healing to the roots of our family tree. We all need a healthy support structure that nurtures proper growth, and we all need to cut away the bad ideas, the sin, and the unhealth that doesn't produce good fruit in our lives. And when the sap of the gospel begins to be applied to the places that matter, guys, often what we see is miraculous, supernatural depth and growth for the glory of God. Being trained to grow differently isn't always pleasant, but it is fruitful. Amen? As the worship team comes up to close us out, would you pray with me one more time? Father, I thank you that you love us as we are. You know, I think about the love that you had for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Their lives are so messy. Matter of fact, they kind of make us feel good about our lives when we look at theirs. And yet, you remain faithful to them. You demonstrated your goodness. You continued to love and pursue them despite the fact that they were loaded with sin and dysfunction and all kinds of problems. And God, I thank you that we can cling to that promise today as well. That no matter the baggage we come with, whether that's a little or whether that's a lot, that by your grace and for your glory, you continue to prove that you are faithful in every season. That the gospel is really not at all on the basis of our works and how perfect we are. It's solely on the basis of your grace. Your love, your care, your blessing of our lives is not based on our performance. And yet, God, you call us to learn a new way to live, a new way to relate. You call us to be engaged in the process of growing in the likeness of your son. May your word work its way into our hearts. May the truths of the gospel deepen our perspective in life so that we grow in the image and in the likeness of your son. God, we want you to receive the most glory that you can out of our lives. So continue to shape us. We want to partner with you in that. In the name of Jesus, amen.